0: You know, it's all well and good to be very snobby about it and get ooh, ooh, nature at people. But people have busy lives, they have dogs, they have children, they have a disability. So we need to come up with solutions to, to fix that. So that's where the challenge is. We need to sort of find an alternative which will replace the plastic. And that's where the challenge comes.
1: Welcome To The Underground, the podcast for garden sector professionals, where we discover the trailblazers and innovators who are shaping the future of garden care in the UK. From plants to products, wildlife and the environment, we'll dig deep to bring you the inside story. So without further ado, let's get down and dirty.
2: So on today's podcast, Phil and I are joined by the lovely Charlotte Howard. Uh, She is a garden designer, has her own company called Capability Charlotte. She has an RHS Masters of Horticulture, that's not gardening, it's horticulture, and a national diploma in horticulture. But one of the main reasons we've got Charlotte on today, well, there's two reasons. Uh, she's also the founder of uh, a Facebook group called uh, Women in Gardening Network, fondly known as Weeks, And this has over 3,000 members. And she's not shy on putting her views forward. And last year, she was seen on Gardener's World with Eric Anderson talking about why she wants artificial turf banned. She has a campaign, which is hashtag time for turf. Not only that, she's also very recently started a campaign highlighting the problems that women find getting decent, comfortable and affordable workwear. So Charlotte,
0: it's lovely to meet you. Hello Kate and hello Phil. (laughs) So Charlotte,
2: can you give us a bit of background about yourself? Tell us how you got into horticulture and, and what your role is now.
0: Yeah, so I have um, quite a varied background, a sort of didactic career and a portmanteau career, as they say. So I started out um, in uh, retail management in my 20s and did lots of eccentric things in my spare time. I was the first fully licensed boxing MC. I was a Marilyn Monroe impersonator. I was in the girl band. Wow. I did all of that sort of thing. And then um, <laughs> my parents had a, had a beautiful garden. It used to be open on the National Garden Scheme. And it was always something I loved to do as a hobby. Both my parents were self-employed, my father an architect, my mother an antique dealer and interior designer. And they were both designers and creatives. And it was just something I'd always envied that they had, their time was their own. Um, I quickly realized at the age of 29 that I was pretty much unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like being told what to do. So I decided to make my hobby, my my passion, my career. So I went to gardening college and did my national diploma and, and started my business capability charlotte from there so um, i haven't looked back I, I think horticulture other than gardening um because <laughs> <laughs> it's all encompassing it is a fantastic career to be in because it can take you wherever you are so i've experienced some ill health in the last five years so i've been able to give up gardening and become a consultant so um yeah it's a fabulous career i just wish it was better paid and more comfortable clothing <laughs>
2: Brilliant. So do you find that all that kind of design and artistic creative backgrounds helped you with being a garden designer and a consultant?
0: Without a doubt, Kate. I, I, it complete, uh, my design background completely informs everything I do. I've got a love of history and a love of form. Going and being dragged around lots of stately homes as a child, you see lots of gardens and you just absorb it. It comes in as an osmosis. So yeah, I, 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 without a doubt, I, I, yeah, I think it makes me a more interesting
2: person hopefully so we're just going to talk about sort of sustainability native planting very hot topics within the garden industry have been for a few years and can you tell me how you address these subjects in what you do
0: yeah, I think it's really important to to tackle sustainability in everything we do. I think as designers, we we have a responsibility to do so because we're losing our own natural world, wild areas, our nature reserves are dwindling, I think it's 70% or something like that. So gardens are becoming an essential wildlife corridor. And although they are... Essentially um, a a piece of artifice, they're artificial in that kind of way. We still need to make sure that the gardens are there to to attract wildlife. It's quite funny actually. I was going back through my old garden designs because I'm doing a garden club talk about my life as a garden designer. And I was (laughs) going back, my very, very first garden design was a wildlife garden. So I'm (laughs) it's obviously something that's been important to me. Um I think things are changing. I think the Society of Garden Designers has uh, picked up with that. Um, you know, long may it continue, but I think there are quite a few designers out there that do not put nature and also water conservancy and the use of water front and center into their designs. There's too much hard landscaping, that kind of thing. So whenever I create gardens, I think about. The practicality for the clients first, how are they going to use it? And I think almost as as equal is how is nature going to use it? The two must be in symbiosis, otherwise it just doesn't work. Thank you. So, Phil, you have a question.
1: Yeah. So, picking up on that, really, generally looking at the sort of garden and landscaping industry, where do you see that the sector is uh, falling down from an environmental perspective? Gosh,
0: where, where are they? Where are they falling up? (laughs) Uh, The sector I find incredibly frustrating. And I think some of the the organisations that run the sectors, I'm going to mention barley. I'm going to mention them because um, they are continually awarding uh, gardens that have plastic grass in them, for example. They're awarding things that are heavily hardscaped. They're promoting porcelain, composite decking, all of that sort of thing. And and, and they, you know, I, I've lobbied them, I've spoken to them, I've met them in person and they are refusing to change. We're still, the, the, you know, the big dirty secret about horticulture is the amount of plastic in our industry. You know, we all give out the feeling of being, you know, at one with nature, yet you order some plants and they come decked in plastic and yeah, I find that really frustrating because at my end i'm doing my very best I'm putting nature front and center in into all of my designs, and then I place a plant order and I get the sea of plastic that I have to now deal with um things like um you know the products that come the uh the little pellets they have microplastics are wrapped around them, so we're basically pouring microplastics into our soil, and I think that's it we ignore. The importance of improving our soil
1: at our peril. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. I mean, I've, there are some quite uh, new developments that that I've seen. You know, things like plant pots that are made from wool mm. and that sort of thing. So, you know, if if those sorts of developments and innovations can be um, replicated and rolled out cost effectively. Yeah. You know that, that's the sort of thing which I think could be uh, a game changer for the industry, couldn't it? Yes, and
0: of course thing. there is supply and demand, and I, I also concern that there seems to be quite a heavy emphasis, obviously, with the over from peat to non-peat. Um, you know that the, there are very few decent alternatives to peat-free compost. Uh, there seems to be a lot of emphasis on coir, which is equally unsustainable in my opinion comes from a foreign country and it's a great huge amount of water used in Koya yeah. so yeah um yeah I think you're, you're you're right you have to think about you know all of these there oh, are innovations I posted on LinkedIn uh, uh about a, a product that I receive uh, full of plastic and I had loads of responses from companies saying oh yeah yeah we do all this we do this a cardboard and we've approached all these companies and we've heard nothing from them oh, so Yes, it's maybe it's it's quite hard to make such major changes within a company. I n- I understand that It takes that.
2: time. Having worked for a big company myself, I do know it takes time. Clocks take a time to turn, and it's cost, but there are changes happening. They're just a bit slower than I think we'd like them. I do know that yeah. within plant food, especially the pellets, most now are the, the plastics been taken out. It's good to know. But then what happens is you then get consumers complaining. Uh, so, mm. so it's such a tough one, especially with the peat-free, um, where yes. consumers complain. And I know Koya is definitely a couple of companies I know don't don't use any Koya because of that very, mm. very reason. You're just replacing one problem with another environmental problem.
0: Absolutely, and I agree. And, it, and it's you know it's all well and good for me to moan at these companies, but if I can't come up with with them- you know, what do you suggest, yeah. Charlotte? Well, I don't know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Just do better, please. <laughs> Kate, in her introduction, there mentioned that you're running a campaign to ban or or sort of reduce artificial ban. turf. Ben, good. <laughs> okay, good to clarify that. So, to ban artificial turf, tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, um, it's an interesting story how I came to this um, slightly deranged part of my life. Um, I actually had plastic grass I will admit I am a reformed drug addict as they say not really a drug addict Uh, reformed plastic grass (laughs) addict so um, I live near Bath and they installed it in the shopping centre in Bath Um, um, Easy Grass um, I give them another name and I remember raving about (laughs) it because this was in the early noughties where we just didn't know any different and I was still at college at the time and I just thought, what a great product. It doesn't look like the stuff in butcher's windows. It's got little bits of dead grass. I <laughs> thought it was amazing. I thought, oh, I'll get some of that. And uh, I can't believe it. Not only did I have plastic grass, but I had it underneath my hot tub. Two of the most awful things you can I don't. I don't possess either now. I hasten to add. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's one of the biggest regrets of my life, buying that two metre by two metre patch of plastic grass. But. I'm kind of glad I did it. So I shared it anyway on on social media and somebody just called me out on it and said, do you know how crap that is for the environment, Charlotte? And I said, well, it's only a bit of plastic. And they explained to me and, you know, I sort of was a bit annoyed at first, but like I do, I went home and obsessively researched it and then just sort of realised how terrible it is. And when you think about it... I already really hate weed control memory, and I already hated that when I was at college because you just see it destroys mm-hmm. the soil beneath. And actually, this is exactly the same kind of thing, but worse. So um, I kept that bit of plastic grass until I moved home and then fobbed it off on the new owners. Um, but I kept it because it was actually really good to show how awful it got because weeds would grow and it moss would grow and it cats would do their business on it. So actually, I did use mm-hmm. it as a kind of case study, I suppose, for want a better description. So, I came to it from that really. And then, um, probably a combination of ADHD and massive obsessiveness, I sort of become more and more obsessed with getting the stuff banned. And I found, you know, I've been speaking to quite a lot of really good experts. Dr. Kyla Bennett over in America is an incredibly expert on the dangers of the PFAS chemicals, which it gives out. And you just realize how we're poisoning our wildlife and our children.
1: So, mm. yeah. I mean, I think. The use of artificial grass from a, a, a consumer's point of view, you know, mm-hmm. quite often now they're looking for a quick fix. So especially in the garden, and, you know, everything is, they need the hack. Yes, they do. They need this, something to get to the end result. They don't want to put the effort in. Yes. You know, it's like learning the guitar or whatever, you know, they want to get to the end result. They want to be on the stage and performing. They don't want to do the hours of practice. Absolutely. So, you know, I can see why the, what the attraction of artificial grass can be for people. What are some of the things that you think a designer or a consumers can take on board? Um, can we
0: first of all sort of discuss the attractions, actually? Because it's a very interesting point that you've brought up. Of course. Because we need to find yeah. out why are people choosing plastic grass first before we can then think of different solutions? Because as a designer, we are a solution-based um, business. So people will come to me with a problem And I have to find a solution. So as a designer, I approached it and say, why are people choosing plastic grass? And a lot of people, you know, I look out, I'm in a new build. I look out for all the tiny little postage stamp gardens around me. People have kids and dogs and they just, the soil is so bad. You can see why people make that decision, because as you so rightly said it, Phil, it is a quick fix. But it is all it is. It's like putting a Band-Aid on top of the problem, really. It doesn't actually fix the key, which is soil And it's also a status symbol as well. It's people say it's because it's low maintenance, but it's not actually low maintenance. You have to clean it, you have to hoover it, all of that sort of stuff. So we need to then, because we, you know, it's all well and good to be very snobby about it and get nature at people, but people have busy lives. They have dogs, they have children, they have a disability. So we need to come up with solutions to, to fix that. So that's where the challenge is. We need to sort of find an alternative which will replace the plastic and that's where the challenge comes. Um I do actually have my time for turn report which is available on my website capabilitycharlotte.com. Yeah, it's brilliant. Which um goes through all of the various uh arguments for plastic grass and I hopefully come with it, come up with a cogent argument against plastic grass. Yes, it is low maintenance, To um, but it's not no maintenance. So every garden will require maintenance. Now, my um, messy patch outside has a lawn, has a small lawn, um, I mow it four times a year because I'm lazy and I really hate doing it. (laughs) Um, So I would I would say that my garden is probably fairly low maintenance. I don't put any I don't scarify it and do all the aeration you're supposed to do. It is fine. Um, Obviously, I'm very lucky. I don't have kids or children, just two recalcitrant cats. But um, so I think four times a year mowing for 20 minutes each time is, yeah, pretty good. If you were to have um, artificial grass or plastic death carpet, as I prefer to call it, because I don't think it is grass. If you were to have plastic death carpet, you'll have to wash that. So every time your animal decides to defecate on said grass, the smell is just... I don't know if you've ever smelled plastic grass. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So you'll have to wash that away. Whereas if it was on real grass, um, you just have to, you know, scoop it up and the back... You know, the organisms within the soil eat all the bacteria. So it's actually more hygienic, which people think is weird. People find nature Mm. a bit scary, Um, (laughs) which is another issue. Uh, Then you have to brush it up. So um, Easygrass, for example, do offer a maintenance service, which is £250 a quarter. Wow. to brush up and clean your grass because like all carpets the pile flattens after a while yeah you can't have a barbecue on the grass you can't drop any wine on the grass because you've got to clean that up you can't have a fag and drop your fag on the grass because you'll get a hole all of those sort of things so the maintenance aspect is is a fallacy um which is you know quite easy to burst that bubble but the easiest bu- bubble to burst is is the cost so it is to have a properly laid obviously you could go down to let's mention wicks for example and get some crappy old grass from there and flop it on and uh, hope for the best but that's just going to blow away in the first storm to have it properly laid you need to have an aggregate sub base which is a basically crushed limestone you have to have possibly sand or grano depending on whether you've got animals or not you have to have t- i've just been watching them do it in the house next door you have to have timber edging you have to batten it all down it's a you know two or three days work mm. Um, and it costs, uh, for a 50-metre square lawn, which is your kind of average, most of the new Bel gardens are about 50 meter square, 10 by 5, um, mm-hmm. it will cost you £3,000 wow. to lay a good quality artificial lawn. £3,000. That's a lot, isn't it? And that's not one of the top flight ones. You know, you could be looking at five or six if you have the easy grass Mayfair yeah. range or whatever. Uh, it, um, so... The first option would be to get a Robo mower. I mean, I've actually had a look online and I could find a refurbished one for 300 pounds. Um, you could have a top flight one, even of the posh ones are 1500 quid and then that's yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, or you could hire a gardener. So a gardener rate sort of should be from 20 pounds between 20 and 35 pounds. So, uh, Looking at a basic mowing gardener, not a skilled, skilled gardener, would be about 20 pounds an hour. So if you're looking at the mowing season, maybe 34 weeks max, if that, one, Mm -hmm. one a week. Basically, your gardener could come and mow your lawn for the lifespan of a plastic death carpet. So plastic death carpet lies about 15 years, if that. That's amazing. But it only lasts fifteen years if you maintain it. If you don't maintain it, it'll last five to ten. That's
2: such an interesting statistic that, you know, if you are someone that lives on their own, you've got someone to
0: chat to. Well, that's it. I when I was a maintenance gardener for fifteen years until I got ill. And yeah, it, I was mostly older ladies that I used to go and look after because they wanted another female in the garden. And yeah, I'd go and do errands for them. They'd give me the shopping list or they'd message me <laughs> so they can get some milk on the way. I'd often be the only person they'd see all week, many, many times. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've knocked on the door and they've not answered and they've mm-hmm. been on the floor and I've had to call an ambulance and stay with them. Oh. So there's all of these things. I mean, that's another social aspect. It's another episode. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my friend Katrina from Bath Garden Design you described herself as the fourth emergency service or something. And, uh, yeah. No, it's true. It's absolutely true yeah because people say oh but disabled people need their independence and that just boils my what's it because as a disabled person myself please don't speak for me and i'd be quite happy to employ somebody i we have a cleaner here because i really hate cleaning um and i'm not well enough to do it i don't feel that i've less of a person i've given someone a job and you know he does Um, a lovely job
1: (laughs) so could you imagine any situation where um artificial turf would be needed No. None at all.
0: (laughs) Sorry, that was a very short... No, I cannot see any situation where I, I personally, as a designer cannot see any situation where plastic death carpet is a the solution there's always an elegant solution mm-hmm. uh, have clover have tapestry
1: lawns tapestry lawns are very fashionable at the moment so with the tapestry lawn uh, well, quite interesting i think i saw a mm. photograph of one the other day what's the maintenance like of something like that
0: so yes tapestry lawns were invented by a man called professor lionel smith so if you're at all interested he's got a very dry book out on it one day i want to sort of paraphrase it and make it a bit more user-friendly <laughs> so the idea i mean is a great great guy uh the idea of tapestry lawns is you know sea trays mm-hmm. you basically grow a different variety of plants maybe a yugas maybe clovers maybe violets or something on a sea tray so one variety per tray then you the trays grow and then you you then um take them out of the sea tray so the root system is underneath so they're like, like tiny little rectangles of turf yep. for want and then you lay them out like little stitches so that's why it's called a tapestry lawn and then maintenance wise all you have to do is give it a cut once a year so you cannot cut it but then it will obviously become like a meadow yeah so it would be like having a wildflower meadow but it's actually a bit easier than a wildflower meadow because you don't you don't you're not reliant on the soil being poor I or see. anything mm. like that so and then eventually all the plants grow into each other and become this wonderful tapestry of different flowers and because it's incredibly biodiverse it, and he, his his book is fascinating because it gives you all of the, the different kinds of soils and what plants would suit your area so my dream one day, is to be able to go into a garden centre and instead of seeing row upon row of bedding plants, to see row upon row of seed trays full of tapestry lawn bedding. Lovely.
2: would that be wonderful? That would be lovely. I love that.
0: Because at the moment, there's no way to buy a tapestry lawn commercially. You have to grow it yourself, right. so that requires a lot of mm. greenhouse space. So I
2: suppose a lot of the, the, maybe some of the green roof companies could maybe take that yes. technology and apply it to lawns.
0: And and some of them are. I mean, there are companies that still insist on using mesh on their backing so i will not yeah. use them but i have been working with Linden turf uh, quite yes. a lot recently and they've they're, they're developing very unusual other wildflower well, flower turf companies are available. Um, but they they don't have any plastic mesh backing and they're also developing lots of different systems. So I did talk to them about tapestry lawns. So yeah, that would be great. But it'd be nice to make your own one up, yeah. actually, wouldn't it? To just sort of go with a shopping list and I'll have three of those, four of those, five of those, take them all home. it be lovely, wouldn't it? Plant them with your kids and then just watch it grow. And then, but, so they're fine for kids to play on and roll out on That You can lie on them and have picnics. They probably wouldn't withstand sort of day upon day of football, but they would withstand general family Mm. garden use without doubt.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. I love that idea. Uh, What sort of can be done to change people's attitudes, do you think, both consumer and within the industry towards uh, artificial grass?
0: Gosh, now changing people's attitudes towards artificial grass is, is a challenge. And I've been campaigning now, I suppose, for about five years. I'm quite outspoken and... I'm finding more and more probably the way I campaign maybe a little bit too in your face. So I definitely think shaming people is not the way forward and that's what I, I used to do and I, I don't think it was the way forward. I think is not to shame but to to give people the information, I guess. We need to educate people about soil. We need to educate people about grass. You know, Kids, when I was at school, we were taught about gardens and growing things. Kids aren't taught yeah. hmm. how to feed themselves, how to grow things, how hmm. to grow their own food. Growing your own food is the ultimate political act. But, of course, industry doesn't want you to grow your own food because that it doesn't make money. Yeah. So, yeah, educating, but in a non-patronising way. And I need to change the way I do things and be a little less angry i get quite angry about things i see myself as you know the suffragette movement you'd have the suffragettes that were quite angry and set fire to things and destroyed paintings that's me but then you have the suffragists who were the sensible ones and said well we can make charlotte go away let's sit around the table and then charlotte might go away so maybe we continue to use me as the annoying one and then we have some calm sensible grown-ups doing the actual
1: the actual girls. we're gonna take a short break We've no Kate's Corner this week. Instead, we're going to ask Charlotte to share some words of wisdom. What plant always brings a smile to your face and why?
0: <laughs> My first thought is, it's a plant called Rubus Cockburnianus. <laughs> oh, no. He wants me to lighten the mood. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and why was that at <laughs>
0: Because <laughs> it sounds rude. And I'm a child. <laughs> Carry on gardening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's quite an ugly plant actually. <laughs> or Robert, or as my friend from Wiltshire, Robert Scott Bernie nurse Um I think it's Rubus Coburnianus, if you're posh. Yes. Um, I actually went for my RHS exams wearing a T-shirt with it because there's a guy that does Rube Botany. Oh, Mr. <laughs> yeah, Michael Ferry. Um, any- yeah. Anyway, um, and I, I shall now give you a sensible answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, roses, I love roses. My, my late mother was uh, uh, an obsessive mm. rose collector. She loved David Austin roses, so I love a big, fat juicy pink rose I love Gertrude Jekyll what oh, sounded like Christine Walkden just then didn't I I love how luscious she is um yeah I love Gertrude Jekyll she's she's a good doer I, oh, put, I usually put Gertrude Jekyll in most of my garden designs because she's easy um just like me, no. Um, yeah, so roses. or oh, love roses. I know it's a bit of a cliche because everyone says roses. Oh, yeah. No. No, that's lovely. <laughs> um,
1: okay, <laughs> can you give us um, a great gardening tip that either we could act on now or, or in the future?
0: Um, soil. Improve your soil, and that is something you can act on now. So get in touch with your local farmer, get some well-rotted manure, chuck it on the ground, leave it on the surface, don't dig it in, And let the worms and the birds do the work. So get your soil sorted first before you
1: do anything. Ah, Mulch. That's Kate's...
0: Mulch, mulch, mulch.
1: (laughs) Kate's favorite (laughs) subject.
2: My favorite word. (laughs) Yes. Mulch.
1: (laughs) And back to the show.
2: So uh, earlier in my introduction, I talked about the Women in Gardening Network Facebook group, which you started. Now people might say, well, it's just another Facebook group, but actually it's become a bit more than that. Um, what prompted you to set up the Women in Garden group? I was a member
0: of a very, very large horticultural group on Facebook, one of the largest. I won't mention its name because it's not fair because the people that run it are actually quite nice people. But there was a discussion on there. Um, well, it's sort of been rumbling in my head for a while. And there was a particular discussion. actually didn't involve me. It was somebody else. It was a, a lady asking about bras. And, you know, what bras do you wear that are comfortable? Mm. And, of course, it then got lots of sniggery schoolboy humour. A particular uh, gentleman who Mm. I thought should know better. He was one of the great vanguards of the horticulture world. His landscape advice is sought by everybody, made some particularly puerile comment, and I was just enraged. Mm. Um, um, So I just thought, you know what, I'm going to start my own grape. And those tossers can go and do one. So um, the idea was it for it to be a safe space for women to be able to talk about bras, periods, where we pee, all of those sort of things that we find embarrassing to talk about in mixed-sex groups. But they a very real problem for women that work outdoors. Very often we don't get access to toilets, even though we should have access to toilets. Mm. I'd tell you a funny story <laughs> once when I was having to do an alfresco pee with... <laughs> and the neighbour on the other side of the wall, I was mid-P, said, oh, hello, Charlotte, how you doing? I had to have this long 10-minute conversation (laughs) with my trousers around my ankles because I can't pull them up. So (laughs) so anyway, this is the very... (laughs) This is a very real problem of being a female horticulturalist. So, uh, absolutely. So, so I started it, and I knew quite a few female gardeners, and so I said, "John, come and join my group." So there were about sort of twenty of us. Then it became thirty. Then it became 100 and hundred and five hundred. And now, last look, it was about three thousand one hundred women, and it's international. And yes, yeah, so essentially, at its core, it is a safe space for women. Uh, and I don't care what men say. If you want to go and have your safe, sp- I actually think men should have a safe because I, you know, the same gentleman who made, thought made a joke about bras said that my group is sexist. But if you want to have a men-only gardening group, do because actually sometimes men need a space away from women, and that's perfectly. I think men do need man time <laughs> anyway so yes yeah, so i started group and it, it, it's just grown and grown so it is still um essentially at its core a safe space non-judgmental so if you know if you're a hobby gardener or starting out because again there's so much snobbery in this industry and it just drives me up the wall so i wanted to encourage women to become horticulturalists because you know, I was a career changer and it changed my life for the better. It made me happier and healthier. It got rid of my seasonally acquired depression, all of those things. I just, and I'm mistress of my own destiny now. So I just wanted, so even if you're an amateur, I want you to feel that you can join the group and take on the expertise and experience of all of these amazing, powerful, strong women. They're quite scary. Some of them, they scare yeah, me. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> very much they scare me uh, which is something because i can be quite scary um but yeah and, and i just love the way it's and uh we have two rules don't be a dick is rule one and the other one is do not promote plastic grass because that's my group and I can all make up my room re- and I think don't be a dick pretty much covers everything really <laughs> and but yeah it's it's really great and everyone loves it
1: no, that's so. great
0: I am actually a member of that group and uh, I found
2: it really helpful really interesting the one thing that's really struck me is how difficult women find to charge a decent price for services mm. um, I know men yes they can as well but it really does seem to be women especially people who've taking some time out or like second careers or mums going back to work trying to ask for a decent wage is yeah that seems to be one of the hardest things
0: yeah and that's what I keep banging home about is that you need to value yourself and I, I, I somebody I noticed was 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 putting a post and, and wasn't charging mm. enough and you know luckily I was really pleased to see lots of the women were saying come on love you're not charging enough come on value yourself yeah you know we all I, I, male and female everybody has imposter syndrome and I think you know I have imposter syndrome and I've been doing this two decades and I go and speak mm-hmm. to somebody I've been asked to go and do a workshop on how to prune black no idea how to prune black properly <laughs> I'm just gonna have to go onto google and look it up because you're always learning because you have you become you know you become focused on design and then you forget about other things I shouldn't have admitted that should I uh, <laughs> so yeah imposter syndrome kicks in but as you say I don't know I don't know if it is a female thing I don't know if men don't Value themselves. But I think, you know, there seems to be a certain confidence with men that they they think they're worth it or they know they're worth it. And they are, as are women. Absolutely. Uh, I think women think that we're weaker physically. Uh, Possibly we may be, although I've met some women that are twice as strong as other men. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. Yeah. And so, you know, I started a mentoring service last year, and that's always front and center of what I tell them is just charge more. Or if you've got too much work, you've got too much work because you're not charging enough. Mm-hmm. If you're struggling to keep up with your clients, it's because you're too cheap. <laughs> Wonderful.
2: <laughs> Thank you. So leading on from that, um, as I said, I'm part of the group and I've been following the recent campaign on the difficulties women have in finding decent workwear. And I'm a, I'm a short woman, proud, short and proud. Um, been working in the industry for 25 years. Started out as a parks gardener, and I've certainly experienced real difficulties getting things to fit or be comfortable at all. So, what what led you to start this campaign?
0: um it's interesting actually I just it's actually a campaign that I've revitalized I actually started Uh it back in 2019 I think it's when I was in the old house because I the videos are there so it was basically Uh I was putting on weight gaining weight with the menopause and finding clothes increasingly hard I never had a I never had comfortable clothes actually I always had to because I had I had a small waist and curvy you know I had an hourglass figure when I was slim so I had a sort of small waist and curvy hips and a big bottom so in order to find things that fitted my hips I had to go with things with a big waist mm-hmm. so I was always you know working with bunched up trousers and I'm five foot two and um tiny so none of the trouser legs fit my tiny legs so yeah and then I was just bending down and being really uncomfortable I, was like, well, I had part with this for all this blooming time this is ridiculous why can't I go out and buy a pair of trousers that fit me you know I can go to a shop and find you know a good plus size range so I'm a size 22 on my bottom half also why do we do size 22s what does that mean you know if you're a man you go and buy a 32 waist 32 leg we don't have that in women's Where we have mm-hmm. this nebulous sizing range it was best based on a woman in the 1950s who had a completely different shape body than because nowadays we don't have hourglass figures women are much straighter because of the diets mm-hmm. because of the exercise and so you know all our sizing is based on a house model and you and as you know you go to one shop and one the size 12 is much smaller than other, and they they do that on purpose. Yeah. So, you know, we have this against us in normal clothes, let alone workwear. Um, and so what prompted me to revitalize my workwear campaign was um a particular company who um had done a campaign in the summer with thin non-gardening models. And I called them out on it and they said, oh, no, no, we're going to do something with real gardeners. Actually, we're going to do a competition. And this lovely competition happened. I got very excited and they said, wait until the winter campaign and see what happens. So the winter campaign came out a couple of weeks ago and it was exactly the same house models. (laughs) So I was like, what happened to all of that then? So I just got quite annoyed and did a post and bless the poor lad that's take, just taken over their social media. I was like, oh God, do not I'm going to lose my job before I've even started it. <laughs> so I don't want to have a go at him because he's only been there five Aww. minutes. But <laughs> so, um, but I just put that post on there and goes, can you believe it? I just put a photograph yep. of these two gorgeous, I mean, they're lovely people. They're quite sort of, they're very catalogue models, aren't they? They're sort yep. of but. She's a size 10 and he's a big beefy sort of outdoorsy man type, you know, (laughs) with a stomach like an irony, ball. Most landscapers I know have have a nice beer belly. (laughs) (laughs) So um, what what, I particularly found hilarious was they sent me a catalogue which had their women's wear section. And the photograph was a man, big burly man holding a bag of compost. And the woman was in the background out of focus pushing a lawnmower. (laughs) <laughs> and i just thought oh god <laughs> so i just thought i'll put it up and then it just had loads of comments because it is one of the biggest discussion points after do, charging yeah. is is where do i buy where can i buy good waterproofs where can i buy this where can i find the tools where can i find uh, um hedge trimmers that i can lift and all of those sort of things because even tools are hard i remember i had to put um uh, cable ties on the handles of my hedge trimmers because my hand my my tiny little hands yeah. little little lady hands were too small to hold yeah. the whole thing of the hedge trimmer at once which is really yeah. dangerous yeah. because i had to tie up the deadlock right. so if i dropped that yeah because it's impossible to hold everything together with the yeah. little lady but for hands women,
2: even reaching the deadlock can be yeah. really yeah. hard. i mean i'm like you teeny tiny hands And a lot of women suffer from carpal tunnel syndrome as well. More female gardeners get that because of the tools being that bit bigger and not designed for women. One of my factors, I will say, is that there there is some lovely gut work out there for women, but it's just so expensive.
0: (laughs) Yes. And, and, you know, a lot of the women in the group are are single parents, they're single income families, because often they've had to. Come into this career because gardening is a wonderful career to fit around childcare because it's the one that you can do the school yeah. run, do you know ten till two, and then pick up the kids. And it is it is a lovely career to fit around it, but mm-hmm. it's a great career yeah. to be dressed in. So yeah, a lot of these a lot of these women and we're on crap pay because we're not asking enough. So we don't have one hundred and eighty nine mm-hmm. pounds. You know, some of us struggle to put fuel in our vehicles and feed our kids, let alone spend that kind of money on a pair of trousers
2: whereas you can go into dickies as a as a man yes. and get you know a good because it's the toughness that you want yes. you know it's great buying a pair of chinos from a woman's shop clothing shop but you want something that's going to last not going to rip every time you bend down or rip on a you know a prickly shrub so uh, that that's
0: what what we need. Yeah. You also want to look professional because quite a lot of women yeah. in the group said, "Oh well, I've managed to get around this because I get my stuff from charity shops, or I've got these yoga trousers, or I wear leggings, and I have mm-hmm. you know my husband's shirt, and I have the leggings, and I have this, and but then you end up looking like a bag lady, yeah. And so you, <laughs> you turn up to work in this <laughs> mishmash of clothes. I mean, I look like I look. I always look like something that's been dragged through a hedge backwards. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> literally um because yeah you why, why can't we have professional affordable ethical clothing is there um what do you think the industry you
2: know can do what what, what would you like to see from the industry in in response to this uh,
0: Well, I'd, I'd like the industry to listen to us i think now that we have this amazing big strong group I think it would be, I want to, um, I've been talking about it quite a lot on LinkedIn, actually, in a, a couple of um, the industries that people have reached out to me. So I think I'd like them to to work with our group, really. They've got three, they've got a, you know, a product testing case <laughs> of, of 3,000 women of all shapes and sizes, tall, short, fat, thin, whatever, uh, disabilities, pregnant, not pregnant, all of those, those things. Yes, because that's another thing. Our bellies fluctuate depending on mm. time of the month, all of those things. Um so I'd like them to just listen to us and say, Okay, we are listening. Here are some products. Come out, test them, come back to us, give us some feedback, all of that. And and I know it's hard. I spoke to Ardvark, who are one of the good good brands, and they desperately want to do plus size clothes, but they can't do it because of Brexit. The companies that they used uh, to they can't work with and there's no factories over here. So um, you know, I worked in fashion, I know how hard it is that's why I know how I know how hard it is to turn these things around. The cogs. So, you know, it I don't really have a silver bullet answer. We we need to create the uh demand and ask for them to fulfil the demand, I guess. And it is expensive to have bespoke. But as I said, it seems to be possible for men to be able to choose trousers with waist and leg lengths. So mm. Why can't we? Brilliant. Thank you Mm. so much for that.
1: Well, I think that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for uh, (laughs) Uh, joining us today. Thank you for the time. It's been really good. I've I've absolutely loved uh, hearing about the work that you're doing with women in horticulture. And I I think you're absolutely right. What you're saying about women valuing themselves and valuing uh, the time i think that's really important i think it's a confidence thing i think as much as anything Mm -hmm. so i think that's really important what you're doing there and and saying to people i think that's that's really really good smash
0: the patriarchy (laughs) thanks
2: for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode
0: if you did could i
2: ask a small favor please take the time to like, share and review us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does make a difference and will help others to find us too. To keep up to date with the latest happenings from The Underground, head over to Facebook and join the discussion in The Underground podcast group or sign up to our email newsletter at theunderground.fm we really do appreciate you listening as without you there would be no point to this podcast and we want to hear from you so if you have a topic or a question you'd like us to cover drop us a line Kate Turner the gardener guru is a horticulturalist garden consultant presenter and influencer to find out more check out her website at gardenerguru.co.uk Phil Wright is a founding partner of Wrightobara, a creative marketing agency specialising in the home and garden sectors. And for anyone bringing a new product to market, we've created a handy seven step guide to take your product from zero to hero. Find out more at Wrightobara.com.